Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. From Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. There's a creature that lives in Vermont that you don't see very often, but a lot of Vermonters recognize its unmistakable call. There's the yikes, the yips, and the yodels. This is Susan Morse. We're in the woods behind her house in Jericho. Sue is a naturalist and a professional tracker, and she has a pretty good method for imitating this animal. It actually takes two people. So can you go... Do it, do it one more time. Okay. Sort of. All right, I was pretty bad at this, but thanks to Sue, we made a sound that you might recognize. So you start doing that. If you're guessing coyote, you're right. If you want to say koi dog, that's right too. Koi wolf, also right. This month on the podcast the fascinating canine that's known by all of those names. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. I'm Alex Keefe. And I'm Angela Evansy. And this show has but one purpose in life, to answer your questions about Vermont, our region, and its people. Or in this case, its animals. Our winning question this month comes from Sam Libby. What do we really know about koi dogs? How do they fit into the Vermont landscape? What are their lives like? What do they eat? More like winning questions, plural. But you know what, Sam? We're going to answer all of them. more about Sam Libby's curiosity, I set up a remote interview with Sam recording himself. All right, we're all good. Way out in Boulder, Colorado, where he lives right now. He's one of your classic young Vermont expats. Grew up kind of between Richmond and Hinesburg on a pretty quiet country road and uh, went to college in Vermont as well. So I spent the first 22 years there. Full disclosure, Sam and I actually went to college together at Middlebury College. We did. Yeah, a great time was had by all. These days, we don't keep in touch other than Instagram likes and hugs at reunion. I still get back a couple times a year and uh, still hear the koi dogs in the summertime. So The koi dogs, creatures that have fascinated and mystified Sam since he was a young boy. I grew up listening in the summer evenings or sometimes in the wintertime to koi dogs howling, you know, just a half mile behind my house out in the woods. I was always told they were small and, you know, carnivorous, but for rodents, not for children. So... 
I was never really afraid of them. Sam came to us with some pretty basic questions. You know, where do they live? What kind of hunting do they do? What do they eat? And what do we really know about them from kind of a naturalist perspective? The thing we're most likely to associate with the koi dog is its howl. I also grew up hearing it, and it's kind of a special occasion, like hearing the spring peepers. Now that Sam lives out of state, the koi dogs are a sound of home. There's just kind of this, this mystical noise at night that was this very haunting howling that was going on. And going home and hearing, you know, when I visit now and hearing koi dogs at night is a very comforting sound to know that the landscape hasn't changed enough to push those animals out. A little later on, we learn to speak koi dog as a second language. Not really, but sort of. But first, a question of taxonomy. Okay, so Sam calls it a koi dog. Is that the right word for it? Well, he was actually hearing eastern coyotes. This is Kent McFarland. I'm a research biologist, a conservation biologist with the Vermont Center for Eco Studies. You may recognize Kent from another VPR show, Outdoor Radio. He says the word koi dog is kind of a New England colloquialism. And, you know, there's a little bit of truth to that name, just like all colloquial names. But there's also a big misconception that comes with that nickname, too. The misconception being that a koi dog is a cross between a coyote and a domestic dog. This theory goes back to the 1940s, when the first coyotes started showing up in Vermont. They'd come from out west, and on the way, they bred with wolves. And when they got here, they were a lot bigger than any coyotes that people had seen before. And so, you know, it was just this assumption that, oh, they must have hybridized with dogs. And and like I said, there is a little bit of truth to that. And just a little bit of truth can make things very complicated. Kent says the gene pool of the eastern coyote actually has all three species in it. Depending on where you sample, it's something like three-quarters coyote, maybe an eighth wolf, and a dash of dog. It's very interesting. Bill Kilpatrick is the Howard Professor of Zoology and Natural History at the University of Vermont. And total side note digression, his office is the coolest office ever. It looks like how Wes Anderson would imagine a 1970s zoologist den. <laughs> Too much stuff. Seems like you've been here for a while. Yeah, a long time. <laughs> anyway, Kilpatrick says that coyotes and dogs and wolves are all similar enough that they can still get together and make babies. So that means they can interbreed fairly easily to at least produce viable offspring. Well, viable in the short term. They have some problems uh, continuing the line. Meaning they have issues with their teeth, their productive schedule gets thrown off. So it's not something that biologists believe can establish a, a natural population. So it's kind of misnomers to refer to them as koi dogs. Bottom line, interbreeding is possible, but that lineage doesn't go very far. Even though the family tree is complex, we can say some simple things about what coyotes are like. To start, they eat everything. I mean, everything from deer down to mice. They eat roadkill. They'll eat apples for Pete's sakes if they have to. Also, they live everywhere. You can find them in, you know, Central Park. I mean, you can find them anywhere now. Anywhere from dens in the woods to the mean streets of Boston or Chicago. They live in small family groups and they range over 10, 15 miles. Our question asker, Sam, said he was glad the coyote hadn't been pushed out of Vermont, but their population is actually super stable. And that's the brilliant thing about this species um, or subspecies or form, whatever you want to call the eastern coyote, is that it really is incredibly adaptable. Adaptable because it's smart. 
scientists use some serious adjectives to describe this animal. Cunning, secretive, uncanny. I've seen the, the coyotes moving across the field where we live. Bill Kilpatrick lives in Fairfax, and just visualize what he's describing here. In the daylight hours, they don't usually move the, across that field in a group. They move across it one at a time and fairly spread out. So if something attacks one of them, the other one can flee. I'm sort of imagining like the pink panther. Ah. Not moving across it running, but fairly slowly. This is a cornfield, and so it had piles of manure in it in the wintertime. And so, you know, they would go behind those piles of manure for cover at times as they were moving across the field, but, but very secretive. For a lot of coyotes in Vermont, secrecy means survival. That's because the state has an open season on hunting coyote, which means 365 days a year, they can be killed. This is a very controversial issue in the state. It elicits a lot of strong opinions. On one side, people who say coyote hunting culture can be reckless and needlessly cruel. On the other side, hunters who say it's an important tradition. And many of them believe it's crucial to keep the coyote population in check. Otherwise, they'll kill too many deer and livestock. But Bill Kilpatrick of UVM says there's a problem with that theory. The evidence is pretty clear. The more you kill them, the more quickly they reproduce. And so predator control has actually very little impact. Masters of adaptability. We go into greater depth on this issue on our website, bravelittlestate.org. But for this episode, we wanted to spend more time with coyotes, not the humans who are fighting about them. So back into the woods. I'm going to get on top of a little ridge up here. This is Susan Morse, the tracker we heard at the beginning of the episode. Sue took me out behind her house in Jericho. It's a confluence of several game trails, which are animal trails. It's early morning, and the light is just starting to break into the understory. There's fresh snow on the ground. Sue doesn't like this. Not a lot of tracks right after a storm. She says if you want to try to track coyote on your own, you can look at a map. Pick the softwood habitats, pick the mixed wood habitats, pick the ridge lines, pick riparian edge along rivers and streams, and beside wetlands, pick the wetlands. I mean, the wetlands is like Hannaford's. It's it's a supermarket for, for animals, especially predators. In addition to being a tracker, Susan is also the founder and director of a Vermont nonprofit called Keeping Track. They do work all over the country and Canada, training biologists and others to gather wildlife data to inform conservation decisions. She also has a special knack for talking about animals in human terms. If any wild animal in Vermont's woods could go to Harvard and get a degree with honors, it's going to be the coyote. They're very aware of their surroundings. All of their senses are working full time, um, but they do have an uncanny uh, ability to perceive the potential for danger in ways that other animals don't seem to have. And while we're talking about all of this, Susan seems to walk me straight to a fresh coyote track. We found one. Oh, yeah. Simply said, when you're trying to differentiate a coyote, for example, from a dog, unless it's a whippet or a greyhound, you know, your typical dog, coyotes are much more rectangular in shape with two forward toes well ahead of the placement of the next two toes, which are what we call the rear toes. 
Another good trick is that you can draw an X through a coyote track without cutting through any pads. Kind of hard to envision, so we've got a picture Sue took up on our website. Now, tracks are great, but at the end of the day, literally, what most of us come into contact with is that special coyote howl. And you will be happy to know that there is an ecologist who has researched coyote howls to try to figure out what they mean. My name is Brian Mitchell. I am an adjunct assistant professor at the University of Vermont. I also currently am living in Atlanta, Georgia. Right now, Brian works for the National Park Service. But for his PhD research, he spent time trying to figure out what the coyotes are howling about, what they're saying. It's really hard to get inside coyotes' heads, unfortunately, if they don't talk to us um, <laughs> in our language. All of the howls in this episode are from field recordings that Brian actually made out in Utah. They're of captive coyotes, but he says the basic structure of the sound is what you'd hear anywhere in the country. And there are basically two types of coyote vocalization. The first is something called the group yip howl. Yeah, the group yip howl, it's probably what people think about when they think about coyote howling. What's cool about the group Yip Howl is it's kind of an auditory illusion. Brian's phrase, not mine. Many people will say, oh, I heard a, you know, it was a huge pack of coyotes. It was like seven or eight animals. And in many cases, um, it's often just two coyotes that are making that noise. It's something called the beau geste effect. Beau geste means beautiful gesture. Classic coyote. Brian says the group Yip Howl sends kind of two messages at once. It's saying, we're a happy family. And this is our space, and we will defend it. This gets to the other type of vocalization Brian studied, the standalone howls and barks. In ecology, we call it agonistic. So it's, it's a more of a vocalization you use when you're in conflict with another individual. So if um, they are disturbed by someone or feel threatened. Brian has a theory about these sounds. He couldn't prove it, that the bark means, hey, I'm a little bit annoyed. And the howl... means I'm actually pretty upset here, and I'm feeling threatened. But of course, you don't need to be able to understand coyote language to appreciate it. You know, actually, like the, what was the listener's name again? Uh, Sam Libby. Yeah, Sam. Once again, Kent McFarland. You know, I think Sam has a romantic feeling about them because it's from his, his youth, you know, listening to them. And I think there's something special about having that that predator in our woods, having that that mystery, that spirit in our woods that I would hate to see disappear. Luckily, it doesn't seem like the coyote is in any danger of going away. If anything, it's living closer to you than you might think. was reported and produced by Angela Evansy. You can see some amazing photos of coyotes and coyote tracks courtesy of Susan Morse over at bravelittlestate.org. We've also got a link up to the Vermont Center for Eco Studies iNaturalist Atlas. That's where you can check out sightings and photos of coyotes and other animals all around Vermont and submit your own. Thank you so much for listening to the show this month. Remember, you can submit your own question about Vermont anytime at our website, bravelittlestate.org. And while you're there, you can also vote on the question you want us to tackle next. 
Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund. Our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode was by Poddington Bear, Henry Mancini, and Ben Cosgrove. Also, a huge thanks this month to Peter Lowry, Mike Bernier, and Bobby Summers. The gunshot sounds you heard in this episode were from a short documentary about Vermont coyote hunting made by John Wyman. You can check it out at our website, bravelittlestate.org. Here at VPR, there are loads of people who make the podcast possible. This month, a special shout-out to our in-house genius, Mike Seguin, who has a knack for solving the most inconvenient engineering glitches. Also, we say goodbye this month to you. Ow. This is true. This is my last episode on the podcast. I have accepted a job to be the political editor at WBEZ, so I'm headed to Chicago. And the thing I will miss most is our audience, your questions, telling your stories. But do take heart, for Brave Little State will continue. That's right. The show is not going away, but we are going to take a little time to regroup. And Al, we are super excited for you and we'll miss you very much. Thank you. Um, but we will be back soon. And in the meantime, I'm going to be posting embarrassing pictures of you um, oh, on Twitter and Instagram at BraveStateVT. And I might post some embarrassing pictures of myself, too. <laughs> uh, and one last time, remember to be brave and ask questions. That's the last time I get to say that. I know. That's kind of sad. Boo-hoo. It is a boo-hoo. Everything will be okay, though. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.